Good evening, everybody. Um, welcome to another of our events in the APCO Worldwide series that the European Institute has with, um, with APCO Worldwide <laughs> that, that uh, finances this. Um, the Twitter hashtag for this uh, event is at, uh, hash LSE Euro, LSE and U, uh, the E as, as a capital letter. Um, I'm not sure you may all have read the, the invitation and the announcements. Um, we are very glad to have Dr. Thomas Meyer here uh, tonight. He's a senior fellow at a very renowned uh, research center on financial markets at the Goethe University in Frankfurt. Uh, he's also a senior advisor of Deutsche Bank um, um, Management, I mean the board. Uh, and key clients. He was before the head of the Deutsche Bank Research, and um, he has pre previously held positions at Goldman Sachs and uh, at uh, International Monetary Fund. So I guess his professional experience suggests he does understand a little bit about the thing he's talking tonight. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. Um, when I started my career in the city, I was just talking, I'm actually by training a development economist, so I ended up basically as an industrial economist by chance. But when I came to the city, um, now more than 20 years ago, you know, my first boss told me, put your conclusions up front. You can write as much as you want, but you don't have, if you don't have a clear statement to make and if uh, people can't see it right away, uh, then you don't need to work at all. So what I do here is um, uh, I give you up front uh, my thesis. Um, I think uh, we can only make the euro work um, if we improve the original architecture that was faulty um, and uh, if we observe uh, two elementary principles. Uh, number one, uh, the central bank must issue a non-political money. And number two, we have to realign um, sovereignty and fiscal policy and liability at the national level. So my main point here is we need to actually create Maastricht II and the present cause that is very much, um, I would say, Berlin-driven because uh, the German government right now is uh, very important in driving things forward. The present cause in trying to stabilize the euro by trying to create a political union, a United States of Europe, it's not going to work. Okay, so let's uh, go a little bit back into the history and uh, I'll try to build up my argument by um, going back to uh, the sources, the origins of the, of the euro. And... Um, when you, when you go back and think about where does this idea of European unification come from, you actually realize that the uh, architects of the EU um, already uh, towards the end of World War II thought that they should not again make the mistakes that were made in Europe after the end of World War I. Uh, they recognized, and this was uh, a lot inspired by uh, French um, uh, people, government in exile, they realized that the Versailles Treaty was basically the nucleus of all the trouble that happened later. And they thought, we shall avoid that. We will not do this. 
we have to take a defeated Germany, and this was sort of towards the, um, towards the mid of the 40s, we have to take a German defeat, uh, defeated Germany into a structure, into a European uh, structure. Only then can we stabilize Europe. Only then can we actually now uh, create the conditions for lasting peace in Europe. And also, fairly early on, the idea of a common currency in Europe um, was born. Already in 1949, pretty early on, a French government advisor by the name of Jacques Rouff famously said, Europe will be made through its money or it will not come about at all. So the idea was fairly um, early already alive that um, you have to create a common currency as a catalyst then, eventually to get political union, which then again was seen as the guarantor of everlasting peace uh, in Europe. They started very logical you know, in the integration process with the basic stuff. Uh, you know, you need to make war, to make old-fashioned wars, you need coal and steel. So yeah, you create a coal and steel community. Uh, you, for for old-fashioned wars, and when you think back in the you know, 1940s, 1950s, that was what people thought they would have to guard against. Well, you need agriculture. So we make an agricultural, common agricultural policy. So we create a web step by step. And towards the end, we create a common currency because you know, everyone prints the queen or whatever, the king, uh, the president on its currency. This is going to be then the catalyst to go forward and have political union. So a great project, and I think quite understandably um, honored with the Nobel Peace Prize this year because it was enormously successful. Now, now who would think that we would ever set armies marching against each other in Europe? And that was actually before the 50s of the last century was actually a quite natural thing. Armies was all, were always marching across Europe, now no longer. The whole thing was so successful, actually, that peace was there before the currency was born. We had, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, that I think very, very few really anticipated. Um, and with the demise of the Soviet Union, um, the threat of war in Europe disappeared. The West was, in this post-war period, so much integrated that people could not understand anymore. They could not imagine anymore um, they, were, they would ever march against each other. So the, pro the project was, had been enormously successful even before um, reaching political union. Peace was there without the United States of Europe. Well, um, but there were also some people who were a little bit apprehensive about this. Um, can we really trust a united Germany? Would they not um, go back towards the neutrality they had in the interwar period? Maybe can we really trust you know, that the Soviet Union is now debunked forever? Or would a, a united Germany that is not really firmly anchored in Western structure, at some stage perhaps, become another threat for Europe? Margaret Thatcher at the time gave the answer and said, we, shall, we, we have to avoid, we have to prevent that the Germans unite. Um, this is going to create a big problem for Europe. I think François Mitterrand, the French president at the time, at the time thought, it's not going to work. We can't prevent 
the unification from happening, especially since he saw that the Americans were all pro-unification. So he actually um, thought that to anchor a united Germany firmly into Western Europe, um, a common currency still was needed. That was one important means to integrate uh, a Germany in Western Europe and also to be able to control the economic power, which at the time then was getting much more important than simple military power, to have the control over the economic power of a Germany. There's an interesting uh, anecdote that highlights that at the time this was towards uh, the end of the 80s and it was clear that with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev you know, you had uh, thawing relations between East and West and uh, uh, then the Germans were concerned that French nuclear battlefield weapons, um, whether they would still be needed. Perhaps one should do away with them. So the French and the Germans held a meeting where the Germans said, why don't you do away your tactical nuclear battlefield weapons because they will explode only in Eastern Germany when you fire them from Western Germany and with things getting now more settled here, we don't want that anymore. And uh, the French advisor at the time, Jacques Attali, came back and said, okay, um, but if we talk our nuclear weapons, we also talk your nuclear weapons. I said, what? I mean, we have signed the non-proliferation treaty. We don't have nuclear weapons in Germany. You know that. And he said, I don't mean your army. I mean the Deutschmark. So that sort of showed you a bit how the things shifted and why then, um, especially France, wanted to tie in Germany into such a structure. Of course, already then, um, the, the, there were many concerns that uh, an, a, a currency union without the accompanying political union would not work. And therefore, when they embarked upon the project, they had two parallel intergovernmental conferences running. One on monetary union, the other on political union. The monetary union conference delivered the Maastricht Treaty, that you all know. The political union conference fizzled out. It didn't produce results. In the end, in 1996, uh, this conference signed a treaty in Amsterdam, so it went down in history as the Amsterdam Treaty. This changed a bit the voting rights, but it was a far cry from the political union that people had thought initially would be needed to give the euro a safe harbor. So this would have been the time to say, oh my God, you know, this is not going to really be, this EMU is not going to be backed up by a political union. We are venturing here into something very, very risky. Let's pull the emergency brake. They couldn't do it anymore. The train had left the station, they went ahead despite the risks. Now, when you go back um, in history and look at the fate of um, monetary unions, then it is, lead, it is not encouraging. Um, uh, this is a quote here from Ottmar Issing um, before, before, long, long before he became the first uh, chief economist of the European Central Bank. Um, as you can see, uh, he had uh, looked at the issue and came to this rather pessimistic conclusion by the way, when you now read his comments again, he is also very critical. There's just an intermediate period in which he was chief economist where it seems that he was a little bit more constructive. Um, there, when you look at history, um, then you see that the 
monetary unions without a common uh, state uh, generally came apart because uh, of a lack of uh, um, uh, monetary and fiscal discipline. Um, in that regard, you could uh, uh, say that we took care of the monetary issue. Um, we had we built a, a common central bank, so from that point of view, we didn't have the problems that the Latin Monetary Union had, which existed from, 18, from the 1860s to uh, World War I, or the Scandinavian Monetary Union that existed a little bit uh, similar, uh, during a similar period. They didn't really have a common central bank, so we took care of that. Uh, but there are also plenty of examples um, where uh, these unions came, came apart because of a lack of fiscal discipline. By the way, the Latin Monetary Union also lacked fiscal discipline, and the countries then minted their coins of lower quality when they had a problem um, funding their state. So they diluted the, first the silver or the, or the gold content of their coins, also a way to uh, get away with um, uh, uh, monetary, uh, with, with, with problems in your government accounts by, by debasing the money. That was uh, traditionally always an, an issue. Um, they tried to um, fix that by introducing uh, a pact on fiscal policy. So it was seen as a problem, yeah, a bit belatedly, because this was a, a more an afterthought, the Stability and Growth Pact, was seen as a problem, and they created this pact, but um, it was a really a fair-weather um, affair. The treaty said there shouldn't be a bailout when a country is in trouble, and the pact said they should all keep their fiscal house in order, but there was no real enforcement mechanism. And as you all know, no one ever paid a fine. Uh, so one was hoping for the best, basically, that um, fiscal policy would remain um, disciplined. There are two interesting examples in history, um, uh, which I have also looked at when I was writing this book, this was the commercial, um, where you can see uh, how you do organize um, a fiscal policy in a, um, in a union with a weak center and powerful states, an example that worked and one that did not work. The example that worked is the United States of the 19th century. Um, this was a, an entity that had a fairly thin federal layer and still powerful states. And after the War of Independence um, in 1790, when they had created their new state, they decided that they should pool their debt. Debt mutualization, we call it these days. Because uh, they had incurred this debt for a good cause, fighting the British, uh, and some had uh, uh, paid down the debt, uh, the Virginians, for instance. Others, Massachusetts, didn't, but after all, it was sort of a historical issue. No, let's pool it, right? Let's bring it together. Uh, by the way, it only worked um, uh, because uh, um, Alexander Hamilton, who was from Massachusetts and wanted the pooling of the debt, persuaded Thomas Jefferson to agree to it. Thomas Jefferson was from Virginia, and Hamilton finally said, well, let's then do Washington. Let's make, then make the capital in Virginia, or close to Virginia. Then they agreed. So, um, so they did that, pooling of the, of the debt. Well, in 1812, the states came back. Ah, we have another problem here. We need again the debt relief. They gave the debt relief. In 1838, the states came back again 
well, there were new territories to develop, you know, the West, remember Gold Rush, Charlie Chaplin and so on, and the South, Florida. Uh, and we, had to, we have built too many railways, we have built too many stuff. We are in debt again. So let's pool again. No way, they said. Congress refused. This time not. And this was the beginning of a fiscal regime in the U.S. where the states are responsible for their own monetary fiscal affairs. Uh, so no more bailout. That's why the state debt in the United States is very low relative to their value added of the state. Um, that's why even now, as California is teetering on the verge of bankruptcy, you will never have, a, have heard a word that this in, is a problem for the American banking system. That's one example. The other example is the German Reich, also very interesting. started out, as uh, you know, uh, with a customs union, moved towards a currency union, before they had political union, and then in the French-German War of 1771, created political union. Um, they didn't define clearly the responsibilities. Well, suppose everyone was responsible for everything. With the effect that there was always a competition for tax revenue between the empire at the top level and the states. And as this competition did not really, was not productively um, resolved, they engaged in borrowing. So the German Reich had higher debt than others, competitive borrowing. And eventually, even before the war started, in get debt monetization. So what you saw then after the war, the hyperinflation of 23, was actually already way, the way was prepared for that. So that's why I think the EMU framework, in a sense, had the right idea. So align um, uh, fiscal responsibility and sovereignty at the national level, but they didn't carry it through. Interestingly, the euro was nevertheless a success. When you go back to the economic literature, it shouldn't have happened. We've already mentioned the lack of a mechanism to ensure fiscal discipline, with the sanctions never ever really biting. But also, when you go back to the economic literature of common currents, of optimum currency areas, Bob Mandel, Peter Cannon of the 60s, economic flexibility, labor mobility, essential, yeah? And if you don't have that, a system of fiscal transfers to make up for that. Nothing was there. And it worked astonishingly well for, for a decade. Why did it work? Because the um, deficiencies in fiscal discipline, in economic flexibility, they could be papered over by cheap credit. So the euro was, in a sense, a child of the credit bubble. This is what the American economists who were so critical, Marty Feldstein sort of, you know, fired broadsides. It can't work. It has to come down again, and others, I'm sure, as well. They didn't reckon that the era of cheap credit made the thing fly. But when the cheap credit dried up with the burst of the credit bubble, then the glue that held the euro together disappeared, and the thing threatened to fall apart. But here you can uh, say that the first 10 years uh, were not bad. Um, inflation was on target. Remember Mr. Trichet, the uh, ECB president, was very proud that uh, during the first 10 years inflation was 1.97%. Very precise. He is by training an engineer, so he achieved his target exactly. Um, less than but close to 2%. Now, how better can you manage the system? 
Um, of course, we, we had a bit of a housing bubble as the rates converged, but at the time when the bubble was inflating, we had numerous explanations, uh, you know, why the Irish loved their houses so much and therefore paid a lot of it, while every Spaniard had to have a second home um, at the coastal side. Uh, everything seemed just fine. Um, the ECB had a two-pillar strategy. They said, well, you know, we shall look after excessive money or credit creation. Uh, we'll rein it in. Don't worry. Uh, and we, of course, also have an economic pillar, which we look after and will do what needs to be done. But they actually didn't pay much attention to money, uh, despite their um, uh, profession that they would. Uh, this is a very simple chart here, just showing money growth together with the interest rates. And you can see that at the beginning, when money growth came down, they raised rates. When money growth went up, they cut rates. For a while, it was uh, then synchronous. When money growth in uh, 2008, 2009 came down, it took them a year before they reacted. So while they were saying that they were looking at the monetary side of things, they, in fact, were not really doing it. They were much better... Um, at, what, at doing that, what the standard inflation targeting central banks were doing, namely following a so-called Taylor rule. As you know, this is sort of adjusting central bank rates on the back of a um, so-called cyclical neutral rate, and then you adjust the central bank rate depending on where your output gap is. So capacity utilization high, you move rates up, low, you move rates down. Um, then you look in the rearview mirror, is inflation above my target? Then I raise rates, correct, error correction terms, so to speak, right? This is below the target, I lower. And you can, could explain the ECB as we have done here, um, as I've done here quite, quite nicely. This is the refi rate and then the euro area Taylor rate, you know, calculated with the output gaps uh, from the OECD. So I didn't want to fudge this myself, OECD and then the inflation target. But there's one interesting thing. You see, it's not a very perfect fit. Um, the thing improves when you actually use German data. <laughs> the ECP actually was looking much more at Germany than at, at others or at the aggregate. So at the beginning, they really sort of ran monetary policy for Germany, which led to the side effect that actually it was probably too loose for some of the others. Look at France here. The dotted line is the theoretical rate, right? If you were a religious follower of the so-called Taylor rule, you would have had it there. They pretty much did it for Germany. Yeah? But for France, they were too easy. They were even more easy for Italy, right? Where inflation was always much high, higher than, than the target. And they really let it rip for Spain. Yeah? So no wonder we had here very different developments. Um, they didn't very much watch what was going on on the credit and the money side, and they tilted at least at the beginning, the rates towards the German side. No wonder we had big credit booms and housing booms uh, in the other countries. In fact, and this is a more um, fundamental issue here, this whole inflation targeting thing um, actually created very unstable uh, conditions. I have to hurry up. Um, what you see here is a chart giving you the credit growth on the right-hand side and the output gap on the left-hand side. Now look, this chart is constructed such that the output gap, of course, is on average over such a long period zero, right? has to be. But look what credit growth does when the output gap is zero. It averages 7%, nominal credit growth. Meaning a central bank that tries to minimize the output gap 
creates a steady state growth of credit of 7% nominal terms. Keep in mind that during that period, nominal GDP growth was 4, right? So output gap minimization, as you do in, uh, in, in, in inflation targeting, actually led to an explosive uh, credit to GDP ratio. I need to speed up. Um, uh, I've already talked about the deficit and debt. We're not really sort of a, a, a serious issue, not more than, uh, than elsewhere, but uh, created some problems. And then, of course, you know this chart. Um, we did not control our costs in the euro area. We had big uh, conversions in, in costs. Now, um, since we did not build into the Maastricht Treaty a crisis management mechanism. And since the euro came unglued when the cheap credit dried up, right, um, they had to do um, untraditional, which had to do, um, how should I say, um, they had to do things out of the box. Yeah, that was not in the Maastricht Treaty. And therefore, um, we, we ended into a crisis of legitimacy. You can see that now in the lawsuits that are being filed um, against um, especially in Germany, against the government, you know, ESM, but now also in the European Court of Justice. Uh, what has happened was not in the treaty. So we have a crisis of legitimacy in Europe. And, of course, uh, the ECB is under fire as they have to kept the banks alive. This is the famous long-term financing operations you can see here. Um, they bought bonds in the securities markets purchase program, right, and they are now buying them again in the OMT uh, open outright monetary transactions, all the critics say not legitimate under the treaty. They shouldn't do it. And, of course, as the credit dried up, we got a balance of payments crisis. Uh, countries had a classical balance of payments crisis. The balance of payments sum up the current account and the capital account draw a line. What you get below that is the balance of payments. So a country that has a current account deficit and capital outflows, yeah, has a very big balance of payments. Normally, in a fixed exchange rate system, then the currency crashes. That we cannot happen. So we give a little bit of help um, through the fiscal accounts, but we give a lot of help through the central bank. This chart here shows you, and look at the black line, which is plotted on the right-hand side. This is the ECB's lending by territory, and this is the... Um, Black line gives you the share of their lending going to Greece, Ireland, Italy, Portugal, and Spain. So basically, up to 80% of their lending went just to these three countries. So they fed these countries with money. The countries used that money to pay their bills. In other words, to fund their balance of payments deficit, the money flowed north to the surplus countries. And fortunately, because they built the interbank payment system still in national categories, we can measure this when we look at the flows through the interbank payment system. This is the famous, uh, skip that, the famous target two system. And here you see that. What you see going up are the Bundesbank's accumulation of claims under the target two system. They were getting the money in the interbank payment system, and the others were losing the money. So the euro system turned into a funding machine for balance of payments imbalances here. Now, um, I already mentioned to you, the question is, can we go forward and now create the political union in order to bring the euro into a safe harbor like the United States of Europe? 
what a bit odd, right? The euro was supposed to be a catalyst to come to political union to secure everlasting peace. Now, all of a sudden, we need political union to stabilize the euro, which was supposed to be a means to get towards political union. It does not make really sense. And I think people realize that. They don't want political union. Look at the um, referendums in 2005 in France and in the Netherlands. They don't want to, to transfer more sovereignty to Brussels. And therefore, I think um, the only way, really, a realistic way, is to go back, to construct a system that is better than the Maastricht system but has the same principles, as I said at the beginning. We need a lender of last resort, no doubt. And I think the central bank should be it in such a system. Otherwise, we, we fall apart like the gold standard did um, in the 30s. But we have to do this in a sensible way, in an intelligent way. If you empower the central bank to be the lender of last resort, let it lend through a fiscal authority that can then decide when um, a, a liquidity problem turns into a solvency problem. The central bank should not lend to insolvent um, debtors. They should lend to illiquid debtors. And once this liquidity problem turns into a solvency problem, you have to go through debt restructuring and resolution. Of course, we had a big uh, uh, back and forth uh, in creating a mechanism to uh, uh, deal with this crisis and the lack of leadership is of course uh, a serious issue when you have uh, 17 countries that are on paper uh, equally uh, uh, sovereign right? and they have to agree on something so uh, I think the, uh, the attempt here to bring together a structure uh, created a lot of uh, uh, of friction and, and therefore made the reaction of the system uh, relatively um, slow. Uh, there's one point that I would just mention in passing um, and this is that uh, there is a lot of talk that the Germans have benefited so much from the euro therefore they should pay it um, and the argument is basically uh, because uh, the euro gave the Germans a lower exchange rate than they would have otherwise. Now as economists I think it's a very odd argument, right, to say that it's great if my exchange rate is weak. That benefits me a lot, right? That doesn't make sense. A strong exchange rate is, um, reflects good terms of trade, so that should be something good. Uh, a weak exchange rate is good for industry, and this is what people often omit. German industry is served well with a weak exchange rate because this prolongs the running time of the existing capital stock. They can sell old stuff at a discount but it's not good for the country as a whole. Is there at all a need for the euro? I come back basically to this. This is the same story for the United States. You can see here the US output gap minimization leads to credit explosion, um, and the Americans are unreconstructed output gap minimizers. So I expect trouble um, in the future for the US-led global monetary system. Uh, we will all be part of the trouble if we have to pack our little national currencies or have to look at the dollar when we manage our little national currencies. I have to be um, here uh, relatively brief uh, on that. Uh, how should a new, because of uh, my time constraints, how should a new um, framework look like? I've put this up here. This is the architecture that, have, that I have in mind. The Maastricht treaty was basically um, you could see only ECB on this chart. You know, the 
Price stability, fiscal discipline, economic flexibility, and financial stability are the prerequisite of making it work. So these are the quadrants, if you want, uh, to make the currency union work. And the Maastricht Treaty only had really established as a European institution the ECB and left the rest, achievement of fiscal discipline, economic flexibility, and financial stability, the governments themselves. They should look after it. That did not work. Meanwhile, they have created a lot of institutions. Um, but if the, when you sort of draw it up as an organigram, like this year sort of as a chart, the, the arrows crisscross. I don't have this chart with me, I can't show it because of time, but they crisscross crazy. What you need to do is to create a rational structure and you need to have sanctions. Market-inspired sanctions. If you can't get your fiscal house in order, sorry, you have to restructure your debt in the end. If you're insolvent, you have to restructure. If you really, after repeated efforts, cannot get the necessary economic flexibility, sorry, eventually you will have to leave. So debt restructuring, chapter 11, the Americans would say, uh, procedures and eventual exit for an unreconstructed sinner and foreign ex uh, economic flexibility, in my view, are the ultimate sanctions that you <coughs> need <coughs> to make it all work. <coughs> well, what if it does not work? And I'm afraid we're drifting towards that. We're drifting towards that. Because um, we're ruling out the ultimate sanctions. Yeah? We're ruling out sanctioning a um, deviation from fiscal uh, discipline uh, through uh, de debt restructuring. We say Greece is exceptional. We don't want to have another Greece. We're ruling out that a country that cannot cope in uh, the euro um, would have to exit. Brexit is off the agenda, right? Um, so if we, if we can't have the sanction mechanisms and if the web of treaties that we are presently creating that creates this mess of arrows that I'm not showing here, um, if that does not work, then eventually the central bank will have to be used to clean up the, the whole thing. And this is basically what, uh, what I think could happen. The euro will remain... We will continue to have the euro, but the character of the euro may change. The German-inspired Maastricht model will gradually transgress, be transformed into what I call a Latin monetary model. Um, you may have heard from French economists, but also politicians, that uh, we need an economic government in uh, EMU. And the central bank is part of the economic government and needs to look after um, not only price stability, but also growth and government finances. We are, we're getting there. We're getting there. And if the countries then cannot establish these four objectives, the central bank will have to help them and will make things smoother. And this will lead initially to a stabilization of the south. We're shifting monetary policy that was initially shifted towards Germany. We're now shifting it over to the south, helping the south, but it will create problems in the north. In between, of course, we have a nice intermission between these two acts, right? Act one comes to a closure with, with a happy intermediate sort of conclusion. Then we have an intermission where the inflationary effects of the um, more proactive monetary policy are not showing up in the north. So this intermission, everyone will have a glass of champagne. And then the act two of the drama will play itself out in the north. And then we'll have some agonizing over what to do about it. And here I've I end here a little bit cryptic, and we can discuss that further if you want. 
um, this could eventually lead to uh, the emergence of parallel currencies um, in the northern part when they want to protect themselves from um, excessive inflationary pressures. But this is really the story of the second half of this decade. Thank you very much. Thank you for speeding up. <clears throat> I couldn't resist uh, to try to make an ex Goldman Sachs banker obey me just by re yes. waving my watch. Yes, so thank I you tried very much. that. Always needed. Um, we take now questions till about 20 to 8 because uh, Thomas Meyer will later <coughs> sign his book if you have it. Um, and so give some time for that. Uh, I take questions and answers. Uh, please keep them reasonably short. Tell us your name and your affiliation. I abuse my privilege as the chair and because I have had the benefit of reading the book to start with that. I also should then tell you my name and my affiliation, Waldschreiber from the European Institute. I forgot that earlier. Um, Thomas Mayer, I have always liked your contributions together with Daniel Gross and so on to the uh, uh, solvents, uh, solution of the, the euro crisis. You know, you could then while most of us still trying to get their head around what is this crisis about, they were already getting out with the solutions, were extremely creative. But I was struck when I read your book how conventional in the end your explanation of the crisis is. It is all about fiscal profligacy, the ECB caving in easily, and uh, a lack of competitiveness in, this, in Latin Europe. Now, even if we would take your you know, your, your best example, Greece. Clearly a fiscally profligate government and has perhaps too few um, uh, competitive firms. Without the banks that finance a continuous and sustained uh, current account imbalance, I wouldn't quite know how Greece would have done it. As I always say to my students, a country that's not competitive and it plays a big role in the book, bigger than it was here, uh, such a country is poor, but it is not broke. In order to be broke, you have to have huge debt that somebody has financed. And for my taste, you talk a bit too little about this financial crisis that preceded and that made many governments, not least the Spanish and the Irish, the fiscal authorities get into debt, partly because they then allow the private sector to deleverage. If you say you know, now fiscal discipline is, is the first, uh, of the first priority, then you're basically saying the, the private sector cannot get rid of its debt. Is that really the solution that you propose? Well, I mean, I, I think I, hopefully I was pretty clear that the easy credit was the um, stuff that made the euro work. Otherwise, we couldn't have had um, this build-up of these large imbalances and also this uh, increase in, in, uh, in consumption in some countries, which was really funded from abroad. So cheap credit was really the stuff that made the euro work. Otherwise, we would have already run much earlier into these issues that you were mentioning, namely lack of competitiveness and therefore uh, problems with real divergence. And of course, and I hope I was also pretty clear about that, that the burst of the global credit bubble was the trigger um, this, is, this is basically the subprime issue um, at the other level, right? We had first the subprime issue um, in the U.S. mortgage market. Uh, I remember February 2007. This was sort of when 
uh, a subsidiary of HSBC um, announced that they had some problem in a newly acquired U.S. Uh, when HSBC that announced that they had a problem in a newly acquired U.S. subsidiary, that was the, the trigger of that. And the corollary to that was then the announcement by the new Greek government in September 2009, 2009 that actually they had grossly misreported the deficit. So there is indeed a strong connection. Yeah. Why don't you then talk about bank resolution and that the banks have to take the hit? This is why we don't let Greece default entirely on its debt, because we are afraid that our banks are too weak to take the hit. Yes, of course. Yeah, of course. I don't know. Um, the book has nothing on that, in it? <laughs> maybe, maybe this is simply because I thought it so obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, but that was... Good, I take now questions. <laughs> Easy questions. Oops. I start at the very end, the person in the middle with the white sweater. Those who later have dinner with Thomas Meyer may have to wait. Uh, my name is Gunnar Beck. I uh, teach at uh, SOAS, where we cannot e escape EU law either. Um, Thank you for your delightful talk, and it was so unlike uh, most of the crap one hears out of Germany. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> no, I mean, it really was very refreshing. If I may, uh, one brief comment, and then uh, perhaps one um, hesitant question mark about, uh, say, the pro prospects you delineated. Um, I think it's important, I mean, the usual um, message is still that Germany has been the great beneficiary uh, from the euro. I, you've alluded to one problem associated with it. The other was implicit in something you said before and which has been emphasized again and again uh, by Professor Zinn, namely that uh, although Germany has exported a great deal to the uh, southern European economies, much of the, uh, 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 or a large part of those imports were never actually paid for because they were paid for, they were financed by the Bundesbank. Otherwise, that one, near one trillion target two uh, 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 sum uh, couldn't have uh, arisen. And now to my uh, second point. Um, Can you ask a question? Yeah, forgive me. Um, is it... I mean, at present, it really looks as if the German, uh, as if all German uh, uh, political parties were hell-bent on locking their country into uh, Draghiabelli's lirification of the euro. What makes you so certain that this will not in the end happen? It may just be that Germany is locked in before it can do anything else. Thank you, and thank you for your patience, and forgive my going on. Thank you. Yeah. Who else? Uh, the person down here in the blue, uh, with the blue sweater. Hello, uh, my name is Vladislav Bautrev, and I am master in finance student from University <coughs> of Saint Andrews, which is quite far from here. But anyway, straight straight to the point. Uh, I understand your ideas. And I think the, the structure that you've proposed is very good. But I think the long-term markets are looking, you know, it's all about governing the private sector expectations. And uh, if you look at the interest rates, market trusts Germany, they trust the Nordic countries. 
but they don't really trust Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece. And I think maybe the problem is not political, but how are you going to convince the markets that the euro is going to work? Because they don't trust schematics, they don't trust uh, ECB. They just don't trust that these, all these countries can work together. This okay. is my personal. Okay. Thanks. Who else? Thanks. Um, the next person in the, the red shirt. Hi, I'm Chris Land, and I'm a law student. Um, can the internal devaluation policies that are being pursued in uh, Greece and Spain really work? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, to the first uh, comment slash uh, uh, question. Indeed, yeah, we have engaged in what uh, some people would call vendor financing. That was pretty lucrative for industry, right? Because uh, you know they got the cash eventually for their products. Uh, the <coughs> banks uh, were funding it, and then uh, when the um, credit bubble burst, uh, the banks sat on foul credits, which then the taxpayer sort of had to take over. So in that respect, this was not a a great business model. Um, we first tried it with the Americans and then, you know, parallel we made it with the Europeans. And in this regard, what the Bundesbank presently does, what we saw in these target imba uh, balances, is basically, again, the socialization uh, of these claims as the private um, uh, investors are taking themselves out. Uh, someone has to step in, otherwise the system collapses and we get sort of a repeat of the 30s. And this is the Bundesbank. This is why... I've also with my friend Daniel Gossett, you mentioned, we have said the Bundesbank is a sovereign wealth fund, for, like a sovereign wealth fund for Germany, but it's a sovereign wealth fund that has chosen one asset, namely southern European bank loans, to invest in at a rate of 0.75%. Uh, this is kind of, you could give them a price for inverse economic efficiency in running a sovereign wealth fund. Um, uh, in, uh, yes, indeed, in, in Germany there's a, there's, I would almost call it a, an oligopoly, sort of a cross-party consensus that um, uh, political union, further, more Europe is the solution. But this is a view that is held almost exclusively in Germany. When you look at other countries, they're very reluctant uh, to go along. So some people say, well, you know, at least the government has this political union objective carries it forward um, because uh, our partners, especially France, say they want to uh, have debt mutualization. And then the Germans can say, well, we agree to that if you agree to give up your sovereignty to Brussels. And then we are, basically, we agree to disagree and we are stuck where we are. So there are these, uh, I would say also this, this explanation as a tactical position to have this. Um, you said that the markets uh, have uh, lost trust in, in, in these countries, and we could in see, indeed see that. They lost trust in, in these countries. We said enormous widening of spreads. Um, but, and, and nothing did seem to help. It was a bit you know, like the scene of a very big car crash on the highway. Um, there was uh, cars crashing into each other, people bleeding, ambulances coming, but too small. Uh, as a bystander, you were really, your hair was standing on end. Uh, how can that work? This is going to be a catastrophe. And, you know, in this summer, 
the uh, rescue helicopter with the nice name of ECB arrives and hovers over the scene and everything's, oh my God, finally, finally, you know, now we have the rescue helicopter here and if there's any problem, we take all the injured into the hospital. So we have overcome, we're over the, over the, uh, um, the hill, so to speak. The only thing that we are now waiting for, for the hel rescue helicopter to land, right? <laughs> Someone has to go out and say, here's the landing pad. Yeah? Everyone is looking to Mr. Rajoy, the Prime Minister of Spain, to say, well, here's the landing pad, land. Okay, so, but we are actually now, uh, we have sucked the ECB into this business, and I don't blame them for that, quite frankly. I don't blame them for that. I think it was politically very good to, for them to do this. Because the governments were sort of saying, well, you know, we don't mutualize the debt. We don't want that. We have this, I just mentioned, we have this, this bad situation between Germany and France. Um, at the same time, the euro is irrevocable, right? And then um, the previous leadership of the ECB sort of said, well, we have to make it work. They got in. Yeah? And then the people said, ah, you're straying away from your mandate. How can you do that? Now, Draghi says, well, if you guys, governments, you say the euro is irrevocable, and you say, yes, you know, Spain, Italy is doing a sensible program, who am I not to back you? And you have to do it unanimously. So if the German finance minister says no to a backing of, of Spain, backing of Italy, the rescue helicopter goes away. Up to him. So I think that was probably um, a, a pretty intelligent move that now puts the ball squarely into the camp of the government. And I think they will probably say, helicopter, please land. This doesn't solve the underlying problem, right? But it helps the markets because markets always like a good shower of liquidity. That is always very refreshing. Internal devaluation, um, it's very hard to make it work, very hard. Uh, look, you have to cut wages which is already difficult in normal times, but um, when you cut fiscal uh, uh, spending and raise taxes at the same time, it's getting really socially very strainful. Moreover, um, your economy spirals downward, right? And um, it, it's very, very difficult uh, to correct in these sources, in these chart, these big gaps. How much can they at all cut these wages to overcome a 30% or so at the peak competitiveness difference? I think it's not going to work. Um, and that is why I think eventually the ECB will be, because they can't do it, the ECB will be dragged into helping out. Um, helping out by pursuing, the, quote unquote, the objective of growth. How, you do, how do you do this? You have to get this euro down, right? Um, you have to get a, no, a lower nominal exchange rate as you cannot get internal real devaluation going. You have to hold, get the whole thing down. Of course, that means that um, if the Germans cannot... Uh, sort of do without a surplus, and apparently they can't. I've been working on Germany since 87, and it has never worked uh, to do away with the surplus, except unification, but we can't unify again. Um, so if the Germans can't, can't get rid of their surplus, yeah, the, and the others need now to export more, the euro area has to export more. Um, or the others don't want to have that, right? Um, the, everyone wants to export more. So now you get into a situation, and I think this is probably what we're going to see now, uh, of competitive monetary expansion. You know, this week the uh, BOJ um, stepped up their QE program. Um, soon the ECB helicopter will land. Uh, the Fed puts the, how do you say, 
the, metal to the, the pedal to the metal, right? So we, that's basically the way that we have to get out. And in the end, I think uh, the ECB will win because we have the weakest economy of the world. The gentleman down here in the black. I've heard it suggested um, that, that one way of uh, trying to deal with this problem would be for the, uh, the weaker Latin states um, to go back to their own currencies, see where they settle against the euro, and then eventually rejoin the euro, which all sounds easy, of course, if you say it quickly, but would be clearly horrendously complicated. But I wonder what your views on that. And, and just uh, briefly... Um, Perhaps a way of Germany getting rid of its surplus would be to, to uh, divide into two again. <laughs> <laughs> the gentleman there at the very side. Hi, uh, Oscar Park, an LSE student. Um, if you cast your mind back to the inception of the euro and imagine that your, master, your proposed Maastricht two had actually been in place, do you think the crisis, or the boom and the crisis, would have actually been materially different? You know, you still would have had a global credit bubble. You still would have had a monetary policy which was calibrated for the average of, mm -hmm. of the currency area. Um, and it's not obvious that fiscal imbalances were a major determinant of what caused the crisis, given you know, um, mm -hmm. your Spains and Ireland's had very low um, debt and deficit. Mm -hmm. Thanks. One. If I don't see anybody. Antonio was first earlier, I think, right here. Hi, thank you for your presentation. I'm Antonio from the European Institute, a PhD student. Uh, in page 19, you make an assumption. I don't know if we can go back. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which is about uh, solvency and liquidity. Uh, precise 19, you say? 19, I think, yeah. You're a very good observer. The ECB has been accused of monetizing the debt of insolvent banks and governments. <laughs> um, uh, uh, how do you make the distinction between insolvent and illiquid? Uh, that's, the cru that's the crucial issue. That's why uh, the ECB intervention has been justified and the uh, expansion of the balance sheets of the ECB have been so wide. If we would have a, a way to differentiate it, maybe the ECB could have played another role. Or would you have led everyone to fall down following your argumentation? And secondly, <laughs> um, I have a question regarding uh, your last framework. You propose a framework which still is based in an intergovernmental method. Uh, what makes you think that it will work now if it hasn't worked before? Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, the first question was, uh, could, could you imagine that uh, the weaker states got out for a while, devalued, and then got back in at a more competitive exchange rate. The problem with that is that they would have to default on their debt because the debt is denominated in euros. You know, they, if they get out, devalue the tax revenues would be in the devalued national currency. So you get a huge balance sheet mismatch. On the liability side of the government, you have the euro debt. On the asset side, you have the present discounted value of tax revenues in the devalued currency. So you get massive defaults. Um, uh, if you do this for a small country, no problem. If you do it for um, uh, Spain and Italy, we're wiped out. The banking system can't handle that. So therefore, I think the weaker ones getting out, the, the moment we talk about uh, 
anyone bigger than you know, Greece, Portugal, Ireland, if you talk about countries sort of the category of Spain, it's not an option. Um, that's why I think these countries, and especially when it comes to Italy, these countries will take the ECB where they need it. Yeah. And by the way, France as well, because France is actually not so different. The only difference is that the French have not started with economic reforms. Um, so they, they will. So, sorry about the, the French people here in the audience, um, but they will take the central bank where they need it, and um, and they need basically more help for monetary policy, and lower rates and a weaker exchange rate. That is the help um, that they get, uh, and this is. Probably now, because of the, I think, the, the lack of adjustment capacity that there is in these countries, that's probably now what is going to happen. And this is why I say the Act One is of the of the of the play is uh, saving the euro by tilting the ECB towards uh, uh, Southern Europe. Uh, Act Two is then uh, how does that play out in the um, creditor countries? Now, the creditor countries have uh, a slightly better option. Uh, if they get out and introduce a new, stronger currency, think about it, their government debt stays, if the euro still exists, right? That stays in the euro. They devalue their government debt. Uh, again, look at the balance sheet. The um, present discounted value um, of the tax revenues would go up if, let's say, this currency goes up 10%, 15%, against the euro, assuming that everything else stays the same, and they have a balance sheet improvement. So from that point of view, this is a, it's a partial analysis, we could discuss it in more comprehensive terms, but that point of view suggests that if, one get, if someone gets out, it's actually the stronger ones who will get out. So fix it is more likely than Brexit. Fix it, finish, exit. <laughs> they are this... They are the canary, you know, in the, the proverbial canary in the coal mine. How long will they go on with that? They already are gradually backing out, you know, out of the whole um, uh, rescue exercise, letting themselves giving collateral for all the money they put in, and they will sooner or later ask themselves, you know, what's in for us? And they have the opportunity to do that. Southerners will try to avoid it. Um, would things have been different? Um, if, if my system had already been in place? Well, um, in, I think in a couple of respects, yes. Um, first of all, we would have not had now to repair this, um, this, this, this uh, defective plane in mid-flight. And this is basically what has been done. I mean, imagine you sit sitting in this plane and you see this whole thing malfunctioning and all of a sudden, you know, the technicians run around in this plane and rewire everything. As a passenger, you're getting quite concerned what's going on there. Um, so at least we would have had a system uh, to deal with such emergencies and we wouldn't have had to, to rewire the, the plane in mid-flight while we were uh, head, hitting the thunderstorms. Moreover, um, there, was a, there was an inconsistency in the whole system, on the, one, on the one hand, the Maastricht Treaty said no bailout. Um, and the uh, Stability and Growth Pact um, sanctioned countries if they fiscally misbehaved. So this was the one thing. On the other side, um, the regulators and the central bank was behaving as if a sovereign default was 
out of the question. Regulators were allowing you, us, I'm after all um, a bank economist, allowing us bank people to actually accumulate government debt without setting any equity aside. I mean, we can still buy Greek debt without any equity, but if we buy um, a bond uh, from GlaxoSmithKline or Siemens or whoever, General Electric, we have to set aside equity. They're more risky in the eyes of the regulator than, than governments. That, of course, tilted the whole thing into a very dangerous direction. Uh, normally, the supervisor would slap us on the finger if we would uh, get exposure to one debtor um, that, you know, in the amount of, I don't know exactly where it is, but more than 15, 20%, you're taken to the uh, supervisor and say, well, you know, that's not that risky. But if you buy government bonds, no problem. So in that sense, I think we have set up the system for failure, basically. And here I would hope that if we had been a little bit more forward-looking and would have um, uh, uh, looked a little bit more closely at the internal inconsistencies of the system, we probably would not have had to do all the things we have done uh, so far. What is the difference between insolvent and illiquid? Well, this is fluid, I agree. You know, most uh, solvency crises start out as liquidity crises. I was long enough at the IMF to, to observe that. But, you know, if a country, after two efforts of programs, right, can still not cope, um, I think you have to come slowly to the conclusion that it's no longer a liquidity crisis. When you think of Greece, is that really a liquidity problem that they have, or is it now not even uh, visible to the naked eye? You don't have to have an economic microscope to see that it is a solvency issue there, right? And still, you will see it's going to be dressed up as a liquidity issue, only a very long-lasting one, right? I think we can take one more, two more questions. Artis, you can't resist, huh? Here, Artis, in the front. Hello. Thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, Artis Gallier from the Financial Services Authority here in the UK. Um, I'm also French, and I would say that I, complete, I completely agree with you with uh, the lack of reform uh, in France, especially with the new so. government. Um, so I really like your expression, non-political currency. Oh. So I'd just like to ask, do you, do you really, how can a currency be uh, non-political? Um, Schumpeter used to say, a currency characterizes everything that a country wants, does, is. So how would you uh, de deal with this, this issue? Then in terms of your uh, framework, I think it's a very good attempt to get around the politically uh, challenging issues and uh, the, all the issues such as the fiscal transfers. But it doesn't really take into account the fact that in a currency union where sovereign yields are 500 basis points apart, like between Spain and Germany on, uh, on the tenure, well, on, on the longer end of the, of the curve. This feeds into the banking sector. Spanish banks and German banks are facing very different funding costs. And this ends up feeding into the real economy, which means that two, uh, two corporates uh, of relative, of the, of the similar, similar riskiness will, will face very different interest rates, whether they're in Germany or in Spain. And hence, uh, the, the, the southern economies, which need the most low interest rates in order to get out of the, the recession, are the ones which are actually penalized the most mm -hmm. in this framework. 
Thank you. Thank you. One last. Old women are also allowed to say something. No, there is none. You were first. I'm sorry, Ian. Yeah, I'm uh, Sanjay Sinha. I'm an economist based in India. Uh, from Asia, we watch uh, what's happening in Europe as a form of economic theater. Uh, uh, the, the, the concern is that it will deteriorate into Shakespearean tragedy and drag all of us down with it. Um, we've, your, your, your talk, uh, I mean, what, what brought me here was that your, your talk was called Political Economy. Of, of the euro, but we've had a lot of economy and not much politics. Uh, you seem to have dismissed a political solution to, the, to this problem. It seems to me that um, uh, the problem is that democratic leaders, particularly in, in Europe today, are, um, are really followers. They're, they're following their, their people. They're not leaders. They're saying the people don't don't want political union, that's why we're, we're not going to have it. Actually, is it, is it that Europe needs uh, a strong leader like a, like a Maggie Thatcher who actually believes in Europe to explain to her people that political union is what is required? Uh, if, if, you, if you look around the world, whenever uh, countries have pulled up their, their bootstraps, it's always been under, under a strong leader. Lee Kuan Yew in, in Singapore, Deng Xiaoping, China, uh, various others. All dictators, okay? <laughs> yeah, um, this is quite uh, interestingly questions that uh, sort of go in a similar direction. No? What is a non-political currency and uh, what about political solutions? Um, yeah, well, I mean, you have uh, seen, I have to confess, I'm an economist, right? So I guess if a political scientist would probably have given you a slightly different um, uh, view of things. But I call it the political economics of the euro because my main point really is that it is a political product. Yeah, It is something that you cannot explain. As I, I've, I've lived here in this country uh, for almost 10 years, uh, and I saw how the UK government grappled with these tests. Yeah, should we go into the euro or not? And there were these cost-benefit analysis, and you never get anywhere with that. It's always inconclusive. It is a it is a political animal, right? Um, and you can only do it um, if you are politically motivated by it. And my main point was uh, this uh, character uh, euro has basically lost its author. It is an orphan, as the need for political union disappeared. This is why this is so, sort of my story. So there is some political story in it, um, which perhaps, perhaps may not uh, come have uh, may not have come out so clearly, given that I'm biased towards showing charts that are economical. Um, what is a non-political currency? What, I, what do I mean with that? I think you can perhaps sort of, um, you know dress up the boundaries of what currencies could be. There is the, the one uh, view, which is sort of the Adam Smith view, yeah, a means of exchange. Yes. So very technical means of exchange. Or there is this, this other view. Currency is, is after all, um, a, um, a debt certificate from a government. 
So the government prints it, then it is very uh, political, highly political. It is a claim that the government sort of issues on itself, and it's as good as the government, or the other one. Um, we could discuss what is uh, better or what is worse in the national context, but that is not the point that I want to make. I want to say when you do not have a government, right, uh, you cannot really issue a currency as the liability of a respected government because there is no, there is none. And this is why you have to go back to the um, alternative definition um, of money as means of exchange. And when you draw this to the end, right, means of exchange, well, people ended up um, uh, in Adam Smith's times and uh, following uh, centuries um, using gold. Yeah. Gold is very neutral, very non-political. Um, uh, there is nothing to manipulate. And in that sense, EMU was a bit the attempt to set up another gold standard. Um, but sort of we did not do it well. We didn't heed the lessons from the gold standard of the 30s. This is all that you need a crisis management mechanism, that you need a lender of last resort, blah, blah, blah. The Bretton Woods system was much further. It was, after all, also a gold-backed system. The dollar was tied to gold. And... Um, having studied the 30s in great detail, um, Keynes and, and, and others decided that you have to have a management mechanism in the middle of this thing to make it work. And then we, in EMU, we wonder, uh, maybe this is because we economists sort of don't pay much attention to history. We should do more. We forgot about that. You know, we built something without. We built something that should have been a gold standard without uh, basically something that uh, the uh, people at the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference had seen, had, had seen as essential, namely a crisis management mechanism in the, in the middle. Um, yes, the trans monetary transmission mechanism is indeed uh, impaired. This was, uh, I think someone, I forgot exactly who, yeah, uh, you said that as well. Um, uh, and this is why Draghi sort of says, now we have to repair it, right? Um, he has also to say that because uh, there are lawsuits running against uh, the ECB that uh, they would have breached their mandate by now going in. So um, is it impaired? Is it not impaired? If um, you, know, you get a, a risk premium slapped on in Spain, maybe there is reason for a risk premium. I don't exactly know. I only know that the ECB has to really, really, really make this argument stick because it has to stand up in the European Court of Justice and they will be... They will be drawn to that court. Um, now, what is, is it, uh, should we also, should we just stand up and tell a positive story of Europe as a political union? So can we um, persuade people uh, to, to go there? I really doubt it. I really doubt it. Um, there doesn't seem to me take us for that idea. Um, Europe is, I think, um, far too diverse, not only in language but in culture, to accept such a common leader who would say, look, um, uh, I'm now the incorporation, right? I represent Europe. We have to do it. How, how should he, she or he look like, right? In which language should uh, she or he speak? Um, what tradition uh, should he or she 
um, stand for. Just think about it, how you, how you, you would do it. Um, you know, it's, it's perhaps not by accident that the president of the European Council is a rather gray man. Right? <laughs> because that's the smallest common denominator. So, uh, nothing against, I don't want to, to sound here, it's just sort of like, you could not imagine someone who would live this and, you know, someone who would say, this is the person that represents United Europe. Um, and they've never really put very strong personalities up there because these strong personalities were too much, again, not representing everything there. So, therefore, I'm, I, I just don't think that it will work. And this is why I come out on the... Uh, on the side and saying it will never work um, not in my lifetime and that's not such a bad thing because the diversity of Europe is something great um, I've lived also a long time in the United States and it gets a bit boring you know you go from west to east and everywhere you see the same signs diversity is great and Europe is always strong when we emphasize the liberties in Europe I mean it's great to travel freely around I hate it to stand in Heathrow in the line and have to show my passport. I can do in the continent, I can do everything. Europe is strong when it is um, emphasizing the freedom, freedom to move, freedom to invest, freedom to settle, freedom to work where you want, great things. It gets bothersome when you have to delegate your stuff that you really care for, your taxes, your social benefits, you know, um, the size of the bananas or whatever. You have to transfer this to Brussels. <laughs> I think on this happy note, uh, <laughs> with an homage to a slightly anarchic Europe, uh, we should end this. I thank you all very much for your attention and for the discussion. Uh, before I thank Thomas Meyer, let me just say that I, if you could remain seated, I take him out into the foyer where he will sign the book. Um, but uh, please join me and thank him very much for a very stimulating lecture.